1: Welcome to New Books in European Studies. I'm Tim Jones, and my guest today is Leonie de Jonge, author of The Success and Failure of Right Wing Populist Parties in the Benelux Countries, published in June by Routledge. To quote political scientist Kasmuda, the populist radical right is by far the best studied party family within political science. This may be true, but as Professor de Jonge points out in her new book, less studied have been the specific conditions under which right wing populism has succeeded and perhaps more importantly, failed. For instance, why are these parties polling above 40% in Italy and France, yet remain absent in Portugal and Ireland? At least some of the answer could lie in the Benelux, the political and economic union made up of the Netherlands, Luxembourg and Belgium. More precisely, as my guest makes clear, Benelux offers a comparative case study between, on the one hand, the Netherlands and Dutch-speaking Flanders, and on the other, Luxembourg and French-speaking Wallonia. Leone de Jonge is Assistant Professor in European Politics and Society at the University of Groningen. She graduated from Cornell College, Iowa and Cambridge, where she also obtained her PhD in 2019. Leone, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, it's a a really interesting um, study. Uh, I I say this because I've followed Dutch and federal Belgian politics for a long time. And in fact, I did three podcasts before the Dutch election this year. uh, one of which was on the Dutch New Rights with Maureen Adenhamse. Uh But I, I've got to admit, Luxembourg politics were a completely closed book to me, and I haven't given much thought to the diverging political systems in Flanders and Wallonia. So first of all, can you, can you talk us through the development of this idea? Uh, first of all, how you got it and then how you developed it academically and based on how long it took?
2: Yes, so um, it actually it's quite a personal story because I grew up to Dutch parents in Luxembourg and I grew up in a village and um, I knew the Netherlands mostly from my family and uh, I knew the Netherlands as the way in which the Netherlands sells itself to the outside, a very open, tolerant, progressive country. Mm-hmm. But then growing up, all of a sudden in the Netherlands you saw this shift towards the, the far right. So the rise of Fortuyn. And after that, uh, Geert Wilders and now Thierry Baudet. So there are quite a lot of far-right movements in the Netherlands. But that didn't happen in Luxembourg. And to me, that just was so puzzling because the average Luxembourgian that I met in the streets seemed more conservative than the average Dutch person Mm. that I knew from the media. So I just couldn't get my head around. Why is it that these movements do so well in the Netherlands, but not in Luxembourg? And then when you look at what lies between Luxembourg and uh, the Netherlands the puzzle becomes even more complicated because you have Belgium and Belgium is such an interesting country mm-hmm. super complex politically but then a northern sort of rather wealthy dutch speaking part with a historically very strong far right movement and then a more uh, poor uh, yeah industrial Uh, southern part, French-speaking, where there is no far-right movement despite a perfect breeding ground. And that's how the the question for my research came up. Why is it that right-wing populist parties tend to do better in the Netherlands and in Flanders than in Luxembourg and in Wallonia?
1: And uh, I I saw that in in the introduction to the book, you talked about uh, people you had worked with or or run the... um... The, the thesis by, that included people like Kazmuda, who is a specialist in this area. is that, w- w- Was it something they felt had been underexplored?
2: Well, the funny thing is that when I actually um, started my PhD, so that was in uh, 2015, right? So just before Brexit and before Trump, um, I had to, in, in the first year, you have a sort of a defense where you need to defend your idea in front of a committee. And the committee at the time said, you know this is just a little bit outdated you should really be looking at the rise of left wing populism because obviously mm-hmm. we'd had the financial crisis and we had at the time movements like Podemos and Syriza in Spain and Greece that uh, yeah it looked like there would be a rise of left wing populist movements but i managed to persuade them <laughs> that it was actually quite a timely question to study mm-hmm. this difference in um, electoral support for far right parties across the continent and uh, ever since 2016 no one ever asked me uh, about the relevance <laughs> anymore about this study
1: <laughs> it, it is a good point though actually i mean that there, there is you know there, there are there certainly appear to be more books on right-wing populism than on than on Syriza and Podemos, at least in English.
2: Yeah, and that's not a coincidence because uh, the far right is simply much more successful in Europe. So every time um, I go in the media afterwards, I receive comments saying, well, What about the left? You should be studying left wing or far left movements, but they're simply less strong in Europe. And that, that in, in and of itself, is a fascinating question, right? Like, why is it that? left-wing populist movements are less successful than right-wing populist movements. Mm. I think that would be an interesting study in and of itself. But uh, having said that, the far right is simply really uh, net support for far-right parties has grown substantially over the last decades in Europe. Um, But and that's the puzzle of this book that keeps me up at night why is it that the this net support is not spread equally across the continent why is it that some countries and regions have more far right support than others Mm. well actually
1: a good place to start is is the use of of the, the correct term so um you know you 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 have it in the uh, you have it in the title, and you spell it out early on in the book. Your de- definition of a right wing populist party, because you know we a lot of us tend to use words like far right, extreme right, and obviously populist has become very popular. Um, but you do seem you come up with a very specific definition. Um, that would tend to leave out parties, you know, really extreme parties like, say, Golden Dawn in mm-hmm. in uh, in Greece. So could you talk us through what that definition, definition is and how these parties differ from parties like Golden Dawn?
2: Yes. So the parties that I am interested in are uh, what I call right-wing populist parties. And for the very simple reason that they are first and foremost right-wing, so operating on the right wing of the political spectrum, the far right end of that, um, uh, and uh, second of all that they're populists. it's really really pragmatic solution mm-hmm. And uh what I mean by that is these are parties that are, Nativist, uh, so super nationalist uh, and also xenophobic, not just nationalist, but nationalist and xenophobic, which is why they're called nativist. Mm. Second, they have a tendency towards authoritarianism, meaning they believe in strictly ordered societies. And thirdly, they're populist and populist is like an additional attribute that can be attached to this. Um, which suggests that they believe in a society that is divided into two groups, two homogenous groups. On the one hand, the pure and virtuous people, and on the other hand, the corrupt and evil elite who are out to get them. So that makes them um, right-wing populists. Now, um, what defers them from the extreme right is that um, right-wing populist parties in general still play by the rules of democracy, now, and so in very, very general terms, they do not call for violence. They do not try to eradicate democratic systems. They do not try to get rid of elections. They still play by the rules of the game. Now, having said that, I should also say that, um, so we use the term far right as an umbrella term to include these radical right wing parties that I study and the extreme right parties that are sort of operating outside of the democratic realm. Um, but the, the the line between uh, the extreme right and the radical right or the populist radical right is blurring, and that is something that has been increasingly happening in the last two or three years, so that I think if I were to write the book again, I would probably just stick with far-right parties.
1: Do, do, do you say that because you're thinking of somebody like uh, Baudet and how he has... You know, he 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 started out perhaps appearing to be something relatively new, and then sort of revealed himself to be, you know, very deeply entrenched in typical European far right thought. Or, or, or are you thinking more broadly than that?
2: No, Baudet is definitely a symptom of that of that of that trend. But it's more than just Baudet; it happens elsewhere. But definitely. In the Netherlands, we see that, um, well, we now have actually four right-wing populist parties in parliament, and that's quite interesting Mm. because it's a country that doesn't have historic roots to the far right. So unlike Flanders, where there's a very strong historic far right movement, in the Netherlands, this is quite a uh, relatively new, a recent trend that these parties are doing well in parliament. But you have a lot of um, uh, difference, diversity within this far right party family, um, and Baudet is definitely the more radical on the side. And I, I would even call his party an extreme right party. It really ticks the most of the boxes. It's mm. like overtly racist. It has said anti-Semitic things. It constantly pushes the boundaries of what we deem acceptable. And so, yes, with this party, um, uh, you see that the lines between the radical right, the populist radical right and the far right or the extreme right are really blurring.
1: But to, I, I raise that because I'm thinking that perhaps the opposite is happening somewhere like France, where, you know, uh, Marine Le Pen well, and her father tried this very extreme uh, right wing version. It it got them so far, but not far enough. And as a result, she's now trying to tap into the more traditional um, right of the centre right vote. So, do, do you think what you're describing is is a pan-continental trend or something that's quite confined to to the Netherlands and perhaps to Belgium?
2: That's a super interesting question. I think um, that observation that you make that uh, we see sort of a reverse trend in France is super interesting. I hadn't thought about about it that way. Um, But you're right that in France, uh, we've seen a dédiabolisation, so the the attempt to de-demonize the party and appear more uh, acceptable Whereas in the Netherlands, we're seeing uh, radicalization on the far right end of the fringe. Um, but of course, the, the the situation is quite different. So in France, these parties are not in power and they're trying to rally as much support as they can. In the Netherlands, they have seats in parliament. And after they have entered the political arena, then they started to shift to the far, far and extreme right. Mm. So I think that um, you could say in the French case, it's really a strategy of... Um, acquiring support. And also because of the two-party system in France or the -the first-past-the-post system, they need to try to appeal to a very, very large crowd. Whereas in the Netherlands, you can get a seat in parliament with 0.6% of the vote. (laughs) So it's a very different question. Now, if we look Mm. at Belgium, there you see that the Flemish Interest Party, which again is a very historically strong far-right movement, has also tried to become more socially acceptable, has tried to rid themselves of the stigma of extremism. But in recent years, um, because they are all in one movement, they have uh, attracted some sort of new far-right figures, such as Mm -hmm. uh, Dries van Langenhoven, very comparable to Thierry Baudet. And the leader of the party, Tom van Rieke, is struggling to keep them all together, so to appeal to these various... Um, factions the extreme right and the radical right factions within the support base and in the Netherlands it's quite simple that these parties just split into smaller uh, sections because the party system makes that possible it wouldn't be possible in other countries. Yeah I was thinking that do do,
1: do you think the Dutch case is unique in that you have this almost perfect PR system so it's you have very little interest um, as as any party actually to federate, you have more you have more of an interest to break down into very specific interest groups.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely right. That the, 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 it, there's it's not a coincidence that we now have 19 political parties in, our <laughs> parliament. Right, that the, the Dutchification of politics is uh, the, the, there's a reason it's called Dutchification because the mm. Netherlands are trendsetter in the splintering, of political parties into smaller sections, and that is definitely. Yeah, facilitated by the very pure electoral system Um, Mm. and that also partly helps explain the success of far right movements in the netherlands because it's relatively easy for new parties to enter into the political arena much more easy than in say the uk
1: oh yeah it's 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 very (laughs) difficult here but we'll we'll come back to that because that's a very interesting point um because I've sort of I've diverted you away, away from your book, and I want to come back to some of the generic factors you identify in in the rise of these parties. So, in particular, you you break down the demand and the supply side, which is very interesting uh, in itself. And then you look at the role of the media, the mainstream parties, and this this what you call the breakthrough, the critical importance of the breakthrough moment. Can you talk us through each of those concepts uh, if you remember? The, because it was quite a long question. So, start with the demand and supply. Uh, issue.
2: Maybe it makes more sense to start with the breakthrough, because oh, yeah. um, do. the first question, of course, is how do you define success? That was the first thing. When you start writing uh, and working on a PhD, you need to always define your key concepts. And I had these mm. concepts that were very, yeah, that, that really caused me quite a bit of headache. So first one being the right-wing populism, which is such a difficult term. And uh, But I already talked about that. But then the second point is, okay, if you want to explain success and failure, you first need to clearly define what you mean by success and failure. Um, when you look at a movement like, say, UKIP, which uh, has been super influential, but never really held many seats in parliament, can you then define success simply by seats in parliament? So uh, obviously, that wasn't a very good definition to me. So I had to come up with something more narrow. And one way to think about it is to think about success in two ways. There are two dimensions of success, at least two. And one is um, electoral persistence. So once you broke through, how long do you manage to stick around? And the other one is the breakthrough moment in itself. And that's the one that I'm interested in. So the first moment in which a party or player becomes uh, accepted as a relevant political player. So has coalition potential, um, really manages to stir uh, the media, to raise attention, to yeah, move and shake things. That's That's what I'm interested in. The first moment in which a party breaks through electorally. So that's the the success question.
1: Yeah, although you 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 make a very interesting point which is it, it doesn't just have it, it needn't just have coalition potential it can also have blackmail potential you say. That's right. Which is yeah. So could could you give examples of well the, the coalition example is it, there there are many of those um, Yes. but the blackmail example could you yes. could you give us an So example? the
2: coalition potential isn't <clears throat> enough because say the Flemish Interest Party for instance doesn't really have coalition potential because it's systematically out, uh, yeah, outsided by other parties um, because yeah. of a cordon sanitaire against this party, mm-hmm. but it has blackmail potential. And blackmail potential essentially is the power to push other parties to move in your direction. Mm-hmm. And um, the far right parties in many countries have that potential. It means that you sort of, because you are becoming a strong player or your risk at to become a strong player, you manage to set the agenda and persuade or, or yeah, coerce other parties to take on some of your agenda items or start copying you in some ways. And mm-hmm. this is definitely something we see in many countries.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
1: Well, so repeatedly with Nigel Farage in the UK, um, and seeing it now with the with the Trumpists in in the Republican Party. Um, I mean, that brings us to. Um, a, a very broad point that you make and you also discuss uh individually with with, uh, with the with two countries and and the two regions which is this idea of whether you um, the media and mainstream parties ought to operate a to sanitaire or or whether there are sometimes um, cases for co-opting parties and I, I can think of examples where of where co-opting these parties has actually destroyed them Um the, the one would be the the, the true Finns. Mm-hmm. Um, another, we'll see what happens to them. But the uh, the five star movement in Italy, uh, the independent Greeks with uh, when they went into uh, um, a government with uh, with Syriza. Um, but I guess the, the the one terrible example people think of where it went very very wrong was uh, was von Papen bringing Hitler into into uh, government in the nineteen thirties. Do you? I mean. It wasn't clear to me if you took a side in your book on whether we, you know, one one was a good idea or one was not did yeah. did you yeah i mean could you, you put, expand on that
2: you put your yeah. finger on the sore spot already because i'm quite right. agnostic at the end of the day about um it, it's not sadly it's not sort of a recipe for how to deal with the far right because it's very complicated um because ultimately what the book doesn't say is whether or not it's good or bad for democracy to outs- uh, to, to sort of put these parties offside, to isolate them and to put a cordon sanitaire around them. What does it tell us about the quality of democracy in these polities? Um, but maybe I, I take a step back for a second to explain first why sort of the answer to the puzzle, right? Why is it that right-wing populist parties do better in some countries than in others, according to what I found? And I want to just go back to the demand and supply side framework that you touched on earlier, because um, that is the the metaphor of the marketplace that that you need to have demand for a party's breeding ground on the one hand, and on the other hand, a supply side. So a credible right-wing populist contender who can translate lingering demand into actual votes. This is the classical view of explaining the rise and failure of right-wing populist parties across the board. So um, uh, on the one hand, a breeding ground, and on the other hand, a a strong supply. And I I started out with this two-dimensional framework, this traditional way of looking at uh, or trying to explain the puzzle. And um, I wasn't quite satisfied by it, because uh, when you first look at the man-side features, you see actually there is a breeding ground for right-wing populist movements in all European countries and also across the Benelux region and if anything, it would be especially strong in Wallonia because there the socio-political and socio-economic situation makes that region particularly prone to uh, a far-right political contender in the sense that uh, there's a lot of unemployment, there is high immigration, um, and people are not fundamentally more um, yeah, xenophobic in that region than elsewhere. So uh, to be short the demand side wasn't a good explanation to really explain the variation. So then I looked at the supply side. And the supply side does help because um, the supply side tells you, for instance, why is it possible for, right, wing populist parties to, um, yeah, to translate lingering demand into votes. And there are things like the electoral system, which to be sure in all the Benelux countries, there's a PR system, but in the Netherlands, it's very pure. So it's really easy to gain, Um, to break through. And also, yeah, the the movements in these regions have been much stronger. So there have been charismatic leaders, there have been strong, well-organized, and well, um, uh, yeah, socially rooted movements that were able to rally support but then again, the supply side doesn't fully explain the puzzle because it would just be, you would say, well, there isn't a right-wing populist contender in Luxembourg and Bologna just because there hasn't been one. But it mm. doesn't tell us mm. anything about, well, why hasn't there been one? Why um, hasn't there been a charismatic leader that managed to make their, uh, their voices heard in the first place in these regions? And this was a very long Uh, intro to explain, well, this is how I then turn to my two key players, which are mainstream parties and the media, because they, Mm -hmm. in many ways, straddle this demand and supply side framework, because they are together uh, the gatekeepers of the electoral arena. They determine whether or not a party, a new player gets to enter um, or not. Mm -hmm. So...
1: Yeah, and, and you make this. I you know I I didn't know it until you mentioned it in the book, but I, I looked it up afterwards and saw that uh, Roland Dumas admitted to it in in his uh, memoir in 2011. But this this point you make that uh, Mitterrand, um, in order to try and make trouble for the centre right, he encouraged uh well first of all a change, a change to change the electoral system to, uh, to 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 favor the front national and then to give more media exposure to jean-marie le pen
2: yes um, that's sort yeah. of the best evidence for this case um so i tested in the conclusion i test my theory on other cases uh, including france and france is a case where yes it perfectly fits this theory
1: yeah, and, and I know that, that I mean, because Maureen Adenhamser wrote about this too, this idea of the uh, the VVD being, um, way well, in particular, the, the rise of Fritz Bolkestein and uh, the people who came with him sort of encouraging the rise of the far right in, in the Netherlands. I, I, I don't know, I, I'd be interested to hear your view on this. I, I tend to think that this is not always a bad thing because sometimes um, – like Sarkozy, for example, you could argue that Sarkozy uh, reduced the power of the Front National at least for a period by co-opting, you know, key p- parts of its ideas, but leaving aside the the worst parts of it. Um, yeah. You you could say the same with the VVD. You could say the same with Margaret Thatcher here uh, in in the nineteen the seventies. Um, it, it, it is again is that a view? Would you dismiss that entirely?
2: Yes, you come back to the question which I so nicely avoided, right yes. whether or not what is now what is the way for mainstream parties to respond to far right challengers? are you supposed to copy take over some of their agenda items because obviously, and that's very important, these parties bring up issues that people do care about. So yeah. it's true that um, immigration is something that people have questions about and so it it makes sense to discuss it and to not, completely avoid it but it's the way in which you discuss these issues Mm. Um, so um, to answer your question I think um, mainstream parties and the media have a huge responsibility when it comes to legitimizing and creating increasing demand for far right movements Mm. and we often, mainstream parties tend to see themselves, in particular mainstream parties, they, they tend to see themselves as the victim of the rise of the far right and my book shows that clearly They are not the victims, but they are important agents. And the reason is that they play a role in politicizing issues. And it's not just about, say, politicizing immigration and discussing immigration, but the way in which that is done. So if we look at Wallonia, a case where far-right parties have not been able to make a dent, um, there you see that... Immigration is discussed, but it's done in, in an economic question. It's, it's an economic question. It's framed entirely as an economic question rather than a cultural one. Hmm. And I think that is where mainstream parties have a big responsibility in the way in which topics are discussed. Um, because they often end up legitimizing far-right ideologies if they start to co-opt the far-right. And that ultimately creates more demand for far-right ideas. And I think, and and it's also important to note that my argument is really a twofold argument. This um, uh, only works, so the the demarcation strategy of ostracizing the far right, isolating it, it only works if the media and mainstream parties do so uh, together. Mm. And it doesn't work if it's just the media or if it's just mainstream parties and all parties need to do so. Then it becomes a purely, um, yeah, a really watertight cordon sanitaire, and that seems to work. And especially, and the timing is important. If this cordon sanitaire, it's put around it before the far right becomes big enough to matter, then they're really nipped in the butt. And that is what you see in Volonia. Now, now to sort of the, the the bigger question that this raises, and that I raise in the conclusion, and I don't have a clear answer to, is whether or not this is good or bad for democracy. So, can we say something about the quality of democracy? Is it the case that because we have far right players in the Dutch parliament, that our democratic system is somehow uh, more in crisis than say in Luxembourg and Bologna, where you have demand for these ideas, but they are not um, in parliament or not represented in parliament. They operate uh, outside of the parliamentary arena. That's an age old question, whether repressing such ideas and movements is better uh, for democracy or not. And I think um, I can't it's really a different question to try to analyze the quality of democracy. But what I do say is that far-right ideas are becoming normalized much faster if you have far-right players in parliament who spread these ideas and center-right parties and the media, a media system which legitimize these ideas. Mm-hmm. Then it really becomes, um, yeah, that these ideas become normalized. And that, I think, is very um yeah, could potentially harmful for democracy.
1: Right. Um, could we uh, make the, this slightly micro? Because I think I think I, I was certainly interested, and I think listeners would be interested uh, because of your personal lo- knowledge of the the special case of Luxembourg. Um, you know, why a country that, as you point out, in nineteen sixty one had thirteen percent um, foreign uh, residents in 2020 had 47% and 70% of the workforce being non-nationals that that these ideas haven't really taken hold could you talk us through the specific case of luxembourg
2: yeah, Luxembourg is such a fascinating case. It's often not included in comparative case studies because it's so small, and people also mm. tend to say, "Well, it's different because it is such a micro country. Uh, you cannot really compare it." But actually, you can compare it because it has a party system, just like any other country as well. There are seven political parties uh, that are operating, so it it, it very much can be um, uh, com- is comparable. But at the same time. It is unique in very ways. Various ways, for instance, um, the fact that Luxembourg has uh, about half the people who live in the country do not have a passport and therefore cannot participate in elections. Mm. So that makes a very strange demos in Luxembourg. There is a democratic deficit. Um, but there are, and there are other things that make the country special. For instance, uh, it's quite a wealthy country, and you could say, and this is what I often hear, people will say, "Yeah, but." It's such a rich country, of course, there is no demand for the far right. But then there are countries like Switzerland that are very wealthy as well. There's a very strong far right. So wealth in and of itself doesn't explain why demand wouldn't be there. The demand is weaker in Luxembourg because center-right parties in particular have acted as a buffer on the rise of the far right. They have absorbed some of that demand because they still very closely connected to their electorates and still manage to keep people rather satisfied with the ways in which politics work. Um, And of course, there is not that much supply because so there is a movement, a party in Luxembourg that could be qualified as serving the function of a right-wing populist party, but it is by no way comparable to far-right parties in neighboring countries. And that is Mm. because you can simply not be openly anti-immigrant in Luxembourg because the entire economy is carried by non-nationals. So really, we have a lot of cross-country borders. We have a lot of non-nationals working in the economy. So the entire country would just entirely break down (laughs) if there were no... um, if there were no foreign support in keeping it afloat. Mm. And so some of these far-right ideas simply do not resonate or do not work. Um, at the same time, there is now a rise of nationalism in Luxembourg because it does have its own national identity. There is uh, a Luxembourgish language. And what's interesting is that far-right movements in Luxembourg have traditionally hibernated in these strong um language associations who push the prominence of Luxembourgish language in the national debate. And by doing so, they politicize these feelings of uh, the fear of being flooded by foreigners and the language dying out. And we need to do all these things to keep the language alive. And so these far right ideas are sort of slowly introduced into national debates and, and, um, Immigration is also increasingly being politicized as a cultural question. So um, I'm saying that just to make a point that Luxembourg is not immune to the rise of the far right. There could well be um, um, increasing demand for far right movements.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, as you described there, like pure demand and supply issue <laughs> operating. Um, are you, I mean, you finished this book at the end of last year, I believe you you put it at the beginning. Are you working on anything new?
2: Um, I am very fascinated by yeah. So so my book is already outdated in the sense that the the moment I sent it to um, to Routledge, uh, there was a new breakaway in the Dutch Parliament, and uh, ever since now, so we we are constantly on our tippy toes here because <laughs> um, we now have four right wing populist parties in the Dutch Parliament, so there is competition within. Far right party family, and I'm quite interested in the newer manifestations of these far right movements. So when you when you when I ask you to close your eyes and picture uh, a far right actor, then what comes to mind still in most people's minds are things like um, uh, hooligans or neo Nazis or skinheads and sort of like these these typical um, yeah middle aged white men. Mm. But that idea is so outdated and just not true anymore. So we increasingly see that far-right ideas resonate and are being pushed by um, intellectuals, people with university degrees, but also um, women. So it's really diversifying. And Mm. that is something I want to study in the future. So the the face of the far-right is changing. And I think as researchers, we um, we need to study that and understand more why it is that it's changing and uh, how it is changing.
1: Yeah. Well, and that's certainly the case in in the Trumpist movement. It's incredibly diverse uh, right-wing opinion. Yeah. Um, Okay. Well, since this is a podcast about books, uh, as always, I've asked my guests to recommend a couple. What what have you chosen?
2: Yes. So first one for my field and then one that is a bit more (laughs) broader and personal. So for my field, I, I, I really like... Um, Hate in the Homeland by Cynthia Miller-Idris. It is a fascinating account of the new global far-right and the new far-right in a sense that I just described, right? So she tells the story about how far-right groups develop their cultural and intellectual capacities to mainstream their ideologies. So if you want to understand how far-right movements across the globe gain influence both online and offline, then this book is for you. Okay, And then the second one, Uh, It's quite a different one. I chose Manual for Survival by Kate Brown. It's actually the story of uh, the Chernobyl disaster, but it's also so much more than that. It's about the human impact on the environment. It's about public health choices, and it's ultimately also about politics. And I read this during the first lockdown, and it just (laughs) really struck a chord with me. So I really recommend that.
1: Okay, well, thank you for that. And today I've been talking to Leonie de Jonge about her success and failure of right-wing populist parties in the Benelux countries. Leonie, thanks very much for coming on.
2: Thanks for having me.